Before we start, I'd like to warn you that in this episode, we'll be talking about femicide and violence against women, which includes sexual assault and rape. This is our second episode that we recorded at With Love Radio. In this episode, we talk about femicide, and we also have our first read out article. Another small warning is that during the recording, there were some technical difficulties. So you might hear some clicking or stuttering. I'm joined by Ella, and we will be talking about her article on on Turkey leaving the Istanbul Convention. So without further ado, hello. You're listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. Getting away with murder, entitlement and accountability in Turkish femicide. The decade has seen a massive rise in gender-based violence, GBV, and femicide in Turkey. Between 2008 and 2019, at least 3,185 women were killed by men. 474 women were killed in 2019 alone, not including the 115 women who died of quote-unquote suspicious causes. There was, however, a marked drop in femicide rates in Turkey in 2011, the year we signed into the Istanbul Convention. The Istanbul Convention is a human rights treaty ironically first signed by Turkey. It functions as an international framework for the prevention of GBV and femicide by establishing a series of uniform and standardized laws that can be enforced by all signatories. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has been talking about leaving the convention for a while now. But it wasn't until a few weeks ago that he finally did it. On the 20th of March 2021, Erdogan announced that Turkey will officially withdraw from the treaty. On the 22nd of March 2021, six women were killed within 12 hours. This correlation is not coincidental, but it's also not the immediate result of a law not being in effect anymore either. Legal actions, or lack thereof, take time. It is the result of the fact that the reappealing of the law number 6284, the law that integrates the Istanbul Convention into Turkish law, confirmed to countless men that their actions have no consequences, that women will not be protected in Turkey, that men are entitled, if not encouraged, to do what they deem necessary to, quote, preserve our country's family values, a narrative spewed liberally by conservative Turkish politicians. And if that means beating your wife, forcing her into sex, hell, even killing her if she really deserved it, then so be it. We are, after all, preserving family structures. We will handle this internally. I mean, the Turkish constitution condemns this kind of violence. So we are in absolutely no need for some international convention to tell us how to handle our women, right? Just in case the heavy-handed irony does not come across, I find this narrative dismissive and false. And above all, I find it deeply and irrevocably disrespectful to all the children who have been left motherless and traumatized, to all the families who have lost a daughter, to the memory of all the women who have lost their lives, and to all the women currently experiencing hell and have to watch as their government tries to justify its refusal to help them. Furthermore, these justifications are thought of as genuinely valid arguments by the men in power. To them, by some warped and misinformed rhetoric, they believe they are actually doing enough for the interest of women which in turn strengthens the backbone of the self-perpetuating cycle of systematized misogyny that we see in Turkey today. To address the argument of handling the issue internally, yes, the Turkish constitution does condemn violence against women. Yes, the Turkish constitution does have articles to protect women and children from domestic violence. But the fact of the matter 
is that the Istanbul Convention was our last line of defense against femicide and GBV. Because no matter how many laws and articles and amendments the Turkish government passes on its own constitution to make men less violent against women, none of that matters until they are enforced. And every single one of these laws have enough ambiguity that a judge attached enough to their misogyny can bend them out of shape to be completely inconsequential. Worse so, the laws mean nothing when we don't have the structures in place to protect the women who try to prosecute or try to seek refuge from their abusers. The Family Protection Law, adopted in 2012, says that a perpetrator that violates a restraining order can get up to a whole six months in prison, because that's going to stop all Osman from getting out of the slammer with a literal bone to pick with Aisha. Most women fear seeking legal help because they know that they cannot rely on our legal system. They worry that they will stir the pot. They worry that if they try to pursue a divorce, for example, that they will not be provided with the resources to remain safe. Many of the women who have been victims of femicide or GBV sought out legal help. They went to the police, and they were sent right back home to their abusers. An international treaty such as the Istanbul Convention sets a precedent for how the law ought to be utilized. It provides numerous cases that at some point become standardized, and probably most importantly, it sets up accountability. It gives other signatories a right to intervene and say, you signed this treaty, you made a promise to the women of your country, why are you not upholding it? By withdrawing from the convention, Erdogan has effectively deprived the women of Turkey of desperately needed protection based on his arbitrary, archaic, and frankly abysmal rhetoric of what Turkish values are. Because the perpetrators are not the only ones getting away with murder in my country. So is the government. Which brings us to the double-faceted nature of systemic femicide. First, society encourages men to be violent. It assures them, if you're a man, it is your right. It stifles any potential for non-violent communication and solidifies toxic masculine cognition with the unbearably oppressive prevalence of the shtick we all know and loathe. Don't cry, don't show emotion, be a man. It degrades and dehumanizes women by repeatedly undermining our being, by telling men that they are superior, that they have claims to us, that hurting us is synonymous to loving us, that loving us is synonymous to owning us. We are not autonomous entities, we are objects. It lays the foundations of men believing that they have a right to harm us so far into the depths of their psyche that their entitlement issues are indistinguishable from cultural indoctrination. This Turkish male grandiose sense of self brings to mind the analogy of genocide. You really need to systemically teach a group in society that the other group is inferior and deserve abuse to get so many people to partake with such little moral conflict. Second, except for crimes of passion, which GBV rarely is, it only claims to be, people seldom commit crimes unless they believe that they can get away with it. And the Turkish judicial system has proven time and time again that they can. By refusing to keep them accountable for these crimes, we have empowered men further to commit them. A clear indicator of this fact is the spikes we have seen in GBV and femicide when there is mass media coverage of the lack of protection women have. This happened when there were international protests in July 2020 after the murder of Pınar Gültekin, and it is happening again now with the national uproar against the withdrawal of the Istanbul Convention. Men who already had plans to harm women in their lives see that we have no protection, and so they take that opportunity to act out whatever vile, inhumane plans they believe they are entitled to act out. They truly believe that they are justified in their actions, and so countless women are murdered. We have become citizens of a country which empowers men to abuse and indoctrinates women to cower. 
It strips women of safety, dignity, soundness of mind, and of life. Thank you for reading that past Ella. Um, I think after listening to that, which is quite a heavy uh, article, and if I may say so, very well written. Thank you. Um, I would like to ask you who you are, and maybe to introduce yourself to the people listening. Uh, yeah, so I'm Ella, I'm 21 years old, and um, yeah, so I'm half English and half Turkish. Uh, my dad's Turkish, and I grew up in Turkey, um, and moved here when I was 18. Uh, yeah, that's me. I went to UCN and studied quite a bit about this stuff. And I'm very passionate about it. Yeah, you can tell by the writing uh, and at some time flippant remarks uh, that you are very passionate about it. And that actually brings me to my next question is why, why exactly did you write about this topic? Why, does it, um, why is it so heavy on your heart? Um, well, I actually started writing a different article on the same topic. I was writing about the murder of Pinar Gültekin. Um, which I think we'll get into a bit later. Uh, and the topic of Turkey leaving the Istanbul Convention was something that was very prevalent in Turkish politics for a while. Um, and then midway through writing this other article, I uh, just kind of woke up and saw on Instagram that suddenly Erdogan had decided that we were leaving um, in a semi-non-legal way. Uh, where there wasn't approval, it was just kind of like, yep, we're leaving, we're done. Um, and qu quite frankly, I spent three days very um, upset about it in bed, and I just <laughs> didn't do anything. And then I was like, okay, you know, I'm already writing an article about this, this is a massive development, so I'm going to focus on the Istanbul Convention and about why we left and about why femicide and GBV are on the rise. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, Punar Gailtekin and... Sorry. And, that was, that was uh, decent. It was okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would, could you explain who that is and why they're important? Um, yeah, so Punar Gültekin was a woman, a 27-year-old woman, who was murdered in July of 2020. Um, she kind of became like one of those people um, that kind of kicks people into remembering that there's an issue, and then became kind of like the face of Turkish femicide for a while. Um, her case became very big, um, I think partially for reasons related to her being from the West and young and kind of an approachable face. Um, and yeah, so then suddenly in Turkey, there was massive kind of uprising, I guess is not the right word, but there was a lot of... Um, uproar. Uproar, that's yeah. the word, thank you. There was a lot of, yeah, there was uproar about Turkish femicide um, and people suddenly were just, yeah, they remembered um, what was happening. Uh, and then it suddenly became an international thing and people paid a lot of attention to it um and then we started paying attention to what's happening to the in the politics which then brought to light that uh turkish politicians were thinking about leaving the istanbul convention um which yeah then kind of like became a snowball situation of awareness but yeah yeah so you talk about how there's maybe not a different 
reaction at at home in Turkey mm-hmm. versus uh, Turkish people abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you do you think there's a difference uh, between how Turkish diaspora reacted versus how uh, people in Turkey reacted? I honestly think that, generally speaking, for Turkish people, we've become very apathetic about the issues in our own country. Um, and I think, sorry, yeah. as in as in Turkish people abroad or Turkish people at large. I think this is Turkish people at large. Mm. This is also just my opinion and my observation. But um, yeah, I think we've kind of come to the point where stuff keeps happening in the country, and the most natural response seems to be apathy. Uh, and I think it takes something like the murder of Pınar Gültekin to yeah. Um, make people feel something about these things again because you know the femicide in Turkey is so prevalent right now um, that we don't seem to notice it uh, I, I'm I'm also guilty about this uh, guilty for this as well um, where it's just a woman is killed every single day so to what extent can you learn about every single one of these women to ex- to what extent can you care about every single one of these women. Um, so I don't think there's necessarily a very big difference between Turkish diaspora and Turkish locals, people who are in Turkey. Um, but I think maybe to some level, when you leave, there's more perspective. Um, and when you see kind of the differences in countries like the Netherlands, where you know it's considerably safer to be a woman, Uh, and the culture and the cognition behind the differences, quote unquote, of men and women and gender norms are so different than what they are in Turkey. Um, it makes, yeah, the contrast makes it a lot more vivid. Mm. Yeah, I, I think apathy is an, an interesting, um, I'll say, emotion or state to mm. be in, especially about something that's so... Uh, visceral and, and I guess painful to talk about uh, I can imagine it being quite over overwhelming to just the sheer apathy uh, in in most topics nowadays uh, because we're just bombarded with bad news every yeah. day but I can imagine it being even worse for um, for this and is is that partially why you felt the way you did at the beginning when you when you heard about Erdogan pulling out of the Istanbul convention um, is that what kind of I don't want to say defeated but but put you in that state of oh, I'm just gonna stay in bed I can't yeah. deal with this yeah I think it was kind of like a honestly an attempt at mental self-preservation mm-hmm. but it failed <laughs> um yeah i mean i think like i think there is definitely virtue in selective apathy like i think if you care about these things genuinely at times you have to take a step back and say okay i can't care right now because if i continuously care as much as i always like if i care at my peak always I just won't have the energy left to do anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So sometimes you have to be selectively apathetic to, you know, get through the day to do your dishes. Um, mm-hmm. 
because you need to focus on your life and not always be focused on this political issue that you're passionate about. Um, but then I think that becomes a problem when it's sustained apathy. Uh, and then it just kind of became, becomes like a chronic issue of not caring. Um, but I think my thing of staying in bed for three days was an attempt at um, selective apathy, but instead it just turned into caring a lot and then removing all other stimuli from my life so that I could sit in bed and scroll through feminist Instagram and be very angry for three days straight. Yeah, yeah. I, have, I have a good image of you angrily scrolling feminist yeah. Instagram now. Yeah, um, yeah well... Uh, Eating yeah, ice cream think... out of a tub, crying every now and then. It was a, it was a great time. It sounds fantastic. <laughs> it was so much fun. <laughs> and and that's what spurred you on to then write the article for yeah. for the Master Diplomat yeah. and for yourself mainly. Yeah. Um, yeah, you you touch upon a lot in the article where you talk about on the one hand what the Istanbul Convention does for people in Turkey, for women in Turkey. Um, and people who are affected by by femicide secondarily mm-hmm. you know losing a mother or a sister or whatever it is um and you talk about the general kind of uh atmosphere and culture around the topic of violence against women in turkey um and all with an underlying criticism of the government. I think it, there's a lot in a very short article. Mm-hmm. Um, so to unpack it is a, is a, a feat in, in and of itself. I apologize. No, no, <laughs> please don't. Uh, but yeah, I, I think we should maybe start at the top and work yeah. our way down. So Erdogan. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, why, do you, like, why do you think he would have pursued this kind of line of let's get rid of the Istanbul Convention uh, why 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 is that do you think it's from a position of okay let's woo conservative voters or let's in, entrench our values as you know uh, secular Islamists we've got mm. to we've got to make sure that our family values are protected, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, where, where do you think that started? I'm going to tread lightly in Please. answering this question. No, yeah. I understand. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there was kind of three or four main narratives that they um, leaned on a lot when discussing leaving the Istanbul Convention, uh, which again was you know disputed a lot of people i think statistically it was like 60 something percent of people who were asked said that they didn't want to leave the istanbul convention um i can't I, remember i that. didn't know that it was that high that's yeah no that's i quite big but that it, still means that 40 percent of people did yeah i also don't know to what extent these people were educated about what the istanbul convention is and everything but anyway um i think one of the main narratives was a intensely homophobic one so uh, something that the Istanbul Convention says is kind of like a, a subclause that it doesn't discriminate between sexual orientations when protecting people from domestic violence. Um, and so uh, conservative Turkish politicians who 
henceforth will go unnamed. <laughs> um, indeed. indeed. Uh, called this a promotion of this perverted lifestyle. So a law that says that, you know, sexual orientation will not be discriminated against in protection was going to promote a, a LGBT plus lifestyle. Yeah. That was one of the things. Uh, and that we didn't support this perversion as Turkey and Turkish values. Uh, another thing was that, um, again, Turkish family values are something that shouldn't be interfered with, that Turkish laws are sufficient to take care of women and children, um, that basically uh, Turkey doesn't need this external force um, another thing was that the Istanbul Convention has too many clauses that are open to interpretation, which could then prosecute uh, violent men. Um, this, of course, is a necessary thing. Yeah, sounds like kind of the point. <laughs> it's kind of the point. Mm. Um, it, specifically, I think there was something that said um, that the perceived violence is prosecutable, right? Uh, which perceived violence already is violence. It's emotional violence. It's psychological violence. Um, so if a woman were to go to the police and say, I believe that my husband is going to kill me, the Istanbul Convention would say, yes, then you should be protected. Um, but this was apparently too much. step too far. A step too far. You know, you hand out your hand they take an arm what's that saying uh you give oh god give a finger you take an arm a, yeah something uh, like give that give a finger take a hand or give a hand take an arm yeah the, just, the idea is that yeah. you give a little bit and you, the whole thing goes yeah no it's just women being greedy with you know rights rights typical <laughs> yeah indeed um but yeah no so this kind of ambiguity that would sway in the way of protecting women was something that was undesirable apparently um, and that was something that was emphasized a lot in why we should leave the Istanbul Convention. But ultimately, um, none of these narratives mattered that much because essentially Erdogan strong-handed this decision. Um, so it didn't matter. It was just kind of, you know, half-hearted justifications of something that he was going to do no matter what. Hmm. I said I was going to tread lightly. But, I mean, I think you did. Uh, it was only one politician mentioned, so I think no, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's very good. Yeah. Um, in your article, you are... You deal, and even now talking about it, mm -hmm. uh, I think I'm, I'm also partial to this, but specifically, you deal with this quite heavy topic with a lot of humor, um, irony, and flippancy. And I was wondering, um, well... Shout out to your mother for asking this question, but uh, it, it's uh, it's really interesting, and and I was wondering why why you do approach it in this way. Why is the why is that? Yeah, um, honestly, I would say that this is something that yeah I tend to do a lot anyway. Um, but I think this topic specifically, it is essentially a form of trauma. It's this kind of cultural societal trauma. Um, that I don't think anyone that is exposed to it is exempt from it, men and women alike. Um, and I think um, humor is a very common defense mechanism against trauma. Um, at least it is for me, <laughs> I can say. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. 
but yeah, no, so I just, I think because it's such a heavy topic and because it's kind of sometimes insurmountable um, and it's difficult to get out from under, I think sometimes laughing about it is the only way to address it. At least that it feels effective to me. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's for, for me too. I, yeah. I find it way easier to, to talk about something serious yeah. by having a laugh. Yeah. Because it allows, at least for me, and I think also for you, it allows us to digest it in a way that we couldn't if we were serious all the time. Yeah. But I also do want to say that I don't want my humor to take away in any way from the gravity of the situation. Hmm. Um, like, I, yeah, I don't take it lightly. No, exactly. And I think, if anything, it's because, because you take it so seriously. Yeah. Because it's such a big deal that mm -hmm. that's a way of coping. Yep. With uh, with it. And well, now that we've psychoanalyzed me. Indeed, yes. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Uh, what was I? Yes, now that we've psychoanalyzed you, uh, how how is this humor holding up a month later after it's been it's been a, just over a month since since uh, this went through since yeah. the official uh, declaration declaration. Uh, how have things changed or how haven't they changed? Um, I think things have gone exactly as expected, um, at least by people that I'm exposed to in this conversation. Uh, they've all been saying, I also kind of mention it in the article, it's just men who had these plans and ideas originally have now feel felt further empowered to carry all of this out. Um, I've seen so many videos, so many videos on Instagram of, and videos that have been very difficult to watch. And on many occasions, I've just not watched because at some point humor can't protect you from seeing that. Um, but just of men who are attacking women and say, literally there, there was one particular video where the guy literally says, the worst I'm going to get is a few days in prison or like a few months in prison and then just carries on um, violently attacking this woman. And it's just a, it's a direct result of politicians and our legislation saying to men that women will not be protected. Um, and that was another thing of, you know, the, Istanbul Convention being lifted and six women being killed in 12 hours. That's wow. insane. That is crazy. Yeah. The next day, like, within 48 hours of the decision going through, Damn. six women were killed in 12 hours. Um, I believe that's a 100% increase of the usual statistics in Turkey, which is one woman a day. Is that? No, that's bad math. Never mind. <laughs> it's really bad. Um, it's more than 100%. It's then. way more. So much more. Never mind. I'm not good at math. Let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> no one saw that. Don't worry about it. We'll cut it in post. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no. So it is it is this kind of empowerment of men mm -hmm. to abuse. Um, and just kind of this... It's. Honestly, the analogy of the purge comes to mind, you mm -hmm. know, like it's it's like a state without laws against this specific thing. Yes, there are laws 
Um, there are many things in the Turkish constitution, Turkish legislation that state that women will be protected, but that doesn't carry through. It doesn't show in the actual actions of um, judges mm -hmm. uh, and lawyers and just law enforcement in general. So policemen. Especially because a lot of these people are, are older, right? Uh, yeah. So they're part of, I guess, now uh, the same generation as, as Erdogan, or if not mm -hmm. older, who, who uh, I guess, have very much entrenched uh, misogynist values. Yeah. It's also important to keep in mind that a lot of um, law-related people who are still in their line of work um, over the last few years are generally people who are partial to Erdogan um, for different political reasons that mm. we will not go into. Um, it's a whole different discussion. <laughs> that's, that's a whole different discussion, but basically a majority of judges that are still working uh, in Turkey are people who share the opinions of Erdogan, at least publicly speaking. Mm. So that means that a lot of the decisions that go through kind of on a micro scale so a case-by-case -case scale um are the decisions that people who share Erdogan's views make and not having something like the Istanbul convention which is an overarching protective legislative force removes that last leg that we had to stand on for protection yeah i mean you also, sorry to pivot again, but you mm -hmm. also um, mentioned how when it's talked about that it is so easy to get away with it. And when mm -hmm. it comes up in the news, there's a direct correlation with um, people then going out and murdering women because mm -hmm. they they kind of find out or realize that their plans are valid and they could get away with them. Yeah. Um I, on the one hand, there's that, and pulling out uh, of the Istanbul Convention is another signal that this is okay. But I think it's also important to contextualize it, um, maybe on a bigger scale, for Turkey pulling out of the Istanbul Convention as a signal to other members of the Istanbul Convention mm -hmm. uh, who or signatories who um, are also thinking about kicking it. Yeah. Uh, for example, Poland and... Um, I think we'll stay with Poland to to make it easier, uh, but they they've also now been discussing getting rid of us for very similar reasons, mm -hmm. uh, if not the exact same. Exactly, yeah. Um, I I'm not sure of the numbers, but uh, I doubt they're as high in Poland's in terms of cases of femicide. But I could be mistaken. Um, but what's important to to mention is that Turkey pulling out is a signal. A strong signal because they mm -hmm. were the place where it was signed. Yeah. Um, two countries like uh, Poland and governments uh, in Poland like like um, PIS and uh, PIS. It's hard not to say it that way. Um, so I think that's also an important thing to mention. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think um, the fact that Poland is now, I think, considering leaving. I'm not too clear on these facts. Um, is just a clear indicator of. You know, there's a correlation between a sexist, misogynist government and a homophobic government and leaving this convention. Because, I mean, it doesn't take, you know, in-depth political knowledge to see that Poland isn't exactly the most progressive government at the moment. No, not really. No. Um, but yeah, 
But it's what I do find interesting is in both these countries you have a revival um, of religious conservatism. Um, in Poland you have it from, from the Catholic faith, and in, mm-hmm. in uh, Turkey it's is Islam. And in the end, it's almost the same thing. Yeah, you have a very uh, stringent conservative uh, pocket of politicians and society that wish to bring this, you know. Their world view to to fruition, yeah, um, and it's, it's the exact same thing. Yeah, I think that's what's so astounding um, of the whole thing. Mm. Uh, I mean, on the on the kind of point of Islamification, um, yeah, I mean, I again want to tread lightly in mm-hmm. making any kind of connections between the rise in Islamification in Turkey and the rise in femicide because I think people are very trigger-happy with being Islamophobic, and I want to make it clear that I don't think Islam and femicide have a correlation. I think the way that Islam is taught and the way that authority is placed within cultural Islam in Turkey um, does definitely have a correlation with the way that we approach women. Um, There are so many kind of... I want to say characters because they at this point seem like caricatures of what Islamic authority figures are meant, quote unquote, look like. But these these men with big beards and these big hats and whatever else um, who go on TV and are given all of this authority in terms of people believe them, people follow what they say because they feel like if they ask a quote unquote authority figure what's okay uh, what's jais um that and they get the go ahead by these people then it's you know all bets are off it's fine um and these people are insanely corrupt these people are insanely in my opinion immoral um they say the most awful things about how women ought to be treated disciplined um how women should be punished if they do the wrong things the wrong things being this is a direct quote from someone laughing too loud in public i actually don't think this was a religious authority i think this was a politician never mind oof yep um but yeah no so then you have these different authority figures in politics in religion uh who then share these opinions with each other that are deeply misogynistic that are just bigoted out the wazoo just so bigoted uh and that informs our culture that informs people who have a belief in this religion and then because of this kind of standardized way of applying this religion it then becomes symptomatic of how we treat women um but yeah yeah, so it's not the religion itself. Uh, yeah. It's it's often the interpretation and the yeah. figures uh, yeah. behind it, as you said, the caricatures who push a certain worldview. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter in the end yeah. as much. And I think that's part of the dangers of having a moral authority. You know, that's mm. the danger of having someone who tells people what's right and what's wrong and not teaching people to learn that for themselves. Um, yeah. And that's that's on my thoughts on standardized religion. Organized yeah, religion. I, I, I like the the kind of path we've gone down. Uh, yeah. slightly away. We strayed from femicide, but we have we have yeah we have touched upon some of the root 
issues uh, at play in Turkey and um, m around the world, but, mm -hmm. but mainly we've tried to focus on Turkey. Um, but I think it shows us the, these, these tangents we've gone on, it shows us how, how vast and complex yeah. and deep this runs. Yeah. Uh, that it's not just men killing women for no reason. Mm -hmm. There are motivations behind that. It's very multifaceted. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we haven't even touched upon the male psyche, um, which I think is fascinating. Shall we end on that? Uh, yeah. Um, we, we're not having another music break. Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, no, I think... I mentioned this earlier about how no one is exempt from the traumas of this cultural, I'm going to say, phenomenon, which I think is such a um, euphemistic word for what's happening. It's very academic. It's very academic. It's, it's sanitized. I mean, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think that there is a lot of collective trauma that men experience. Mm -hmm. You know, this violent behavior, this immorality this depravity in my opinion um doesn't come out of thin air uh you know we we do teach boys this you know goes for i think everywhere in the world we teach boys not to cry we teach boys not to be emotionally intelligent uh we teach them that violence is the answer uh and then we teach them to essentially never learn how to process emotions and then we give them a punching bag, which in this case is women, right? And it just, it's two plus two. It makes sense that this is happening because we as a society have failed to take care of our women and we as a society have failed to teach men emotional intelligence to some degree and we've failed to teach nonviolent communication and conflict resolution, which sound like, you know, big things that need to be taught academically they are just things that you just teach in society you know it's just manners it's just behaving properly but then we've essentially psychologically abused men to the point of becoming abusers which again i want to say this is an explanation of the behavior and absolutely not a justification you know, men who do these things, men who rape and kill women uh, or anyone, um, you know, should be punished, that there should be a response to this, of course. But the explanation isn't that there's just this trend of bad people. The explanation is that we are teaching people to behave this way. We're and socializing them to, yeah. to do that. We're exactly. traumatizing them into acting. Exactly, yeah. Oof. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. I think uh, that's one heavy way to end Yeah. Uh, end this, but I do think it's, it's an important point to end it on because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are legal points in place and the Istanbul Convention does, we can see that it does have an effect in yeah. how, how uh, these actions these these end results are dealt with mm -hmm. but we need to look at the beginning uh, and what causes yeah the root of the issue the, the, the issues at large and uh, i think that that makes sense that we end there thank you again for listening 
This was a co-production between Brendan and Ella. We'd like to thank With Love Radio for letting us use their studio and broadcast on their radio. And we'd like to remind you that The Maastricht Diplomat is brought to you by the students of UNU Merit, the United Nations University here in Maastricht. The music in this episode is made by Stone Ocean. If you'd like to listen to the full broadcast with the music played as Ella chose a couple of songs and explained their meanings, please go over to SoundCloud and and go give With Love Radio some love. We thank you again for listening and hoi hoi!